You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Amen, church. Let's go ahead and pray directly out of that. Father God, all glory, all honor, all strength, all power, forever to your name. All dominion, all authority, all things under you, created for you, by you, and through you. God, we worship you this morning. We rejoice in the salvation we have through your son, Jesus. God, even in the midst when we don't deserve it, you are worthy. And you are a saving God. You are a merciful God. You are a loving God. You are a God that pursues us in the depths to put us on the mountaintop. How good you are. So God, this morning, as we walk through your word, God, allow us to see who we are, but also allow us to see who you are and how great you are. We love you. It's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, good morning, Harvest. I hope you guys have had a great week. Uh, if you are new to Harvest, um, my name is Andy Hoffman. I am the pastor of students and young adults here. So uh, we're going to jump right into the text this morning, walking through Judges 9 and 10. Uh, so we're going to be walking through what this looks like for us. And so if you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Judges chapter 9. If you need a Bible, just go ahead and pop your hand in the air. We have ushers come down the aisle. We'd love to get a Bible in your hand. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home for yourself, uh, keep it as our gift to you. We'd love for you to walk uh, through this word together with us. So um, jumping into this, we are a culture uh, of people who, who don't like it when people take things without asking. I think it's a fair statement, right? Uh, we, we often find it rude when, when there's a last slice of pizza sitting in the box and someone, everyone's eyed it up. We all know people want it, right? But they don't get the cordial like, does anybody want the last slice? Where people go in and grab it, like that's kind of the unspoken faux pas of the pizza table, right? Um, uh, you know, no pseudo Curtis offer, they just grab it and shove it in their mouth and it's gone. You're like, well, that was rude. All right, so we don't like that, right? You, you can't walk into a store and take things that you haven't paid for. That's called stealing. God said, don't do that. And you're going to have some shiny silver bracelets anyway, right? Um, so, you know, hopefully you, you would hesitate to walk into your spouse's room and take something off their desk or their nightstand or whatever without asking them if it doesn't belong to you, all right? Some of you guys are like, no, no, don't, don't do that, all right? Um, you know, we, we take issue over those type of things of people coming in and taking things without asking. Uh, oddly, one, one place where, yes, we will balk when this happens, but when people put authority over our lives that they don't have. We, we yeah, we, we might put up a little bit of fight. We might balk a little bit at that, but at the end of the day, People that presume power over us, sometimes it just ends up happening. This happens, you know, you can see this through, through different dictators throughout the world. It's their self-imposed will that brings them the power. Uh, if you ever watch the movie Captain Phillips, I'm the captain now, right? Um, he wasn't going to give up without a fight, but regardless, what, what does he have, have to do in this, right? Um, you know, on sports teams, there's always the self-proclaimed captain, or on any sort of school function, there's always the self-proclaimed leader and all these different things. He wasn't voted on. He's just like, all of a sudden, it's like, I am that person, whether they deserve it or, or not. And, and oddly enough, we, 
we rarely like that someone has pointed themselves to the status and, and we'll gripe a little bit about it, but at the end of the day, we just let them go with it. Whether it's about, about fear or whether it's about uh, you know, not enough energy or sometimes just to keep the peace. And, and this is actually what we begin to see in the story and the narrative of uh, Abimelech. He, he takes a place that is not his to take and then the bottom falls out, right? And, and so in order to understand the fullness of the story, we need to be reminded of the initial decline that has brought us here. And so, so quickly, and back in chapter six, we're introduced to this man named Gideon, and Daryl did a great job last week bringing up through the narrative of Gideon. He started off well, and he was humble, and he was dependent on God. He served the people of Israel, and he served God well, and that's where we left last week. Uh, but however, as with so many leaders who rely on the God in the beginning, if we're not careful and maintain a reliance on God, it becomes a reliance on self. It becomes about a self-righteousness and not about God's righteousness. And so we see Gideon has won the, the battle um, without losing a single one of his 300 men. And, and now the tribe of Ephraim and the people of Succoth and, and Penuel all refuse Gideon's leadership in, in one way or another. So now the battle is no longer God's, but it's now Gideon's battle. And Gideon doesn't put the power in God. He tries to take the power for himself. And long story short, he, he ends up defeating uh, Zeba and, and Zalmunna and the people of Israel ask him to be their king in chapter 8. And, and this is where Gideon's response, actually they say, Gideon, we want you to be our king and your kids to be our king and their kids to be our king. And he says, look, I'm not your king. God is your king. God has not established us to be king, but he is to be king ruling over us. But the problem is Gideon begins acting like a king despite his, his response and God's favor to him. He takes the spoils of war he makes an ephod for himself in his own town, and an ephod is a robe that's worn by the high priest uh, to make intercession between the high priest and the people of Israel. And this is to be done in uh, the temple in Jerusalem. And, and obviously, we, we know that where Gideon is from, Aphra is not Jerusalem, and he is not from the tribe of Levi. And so he's, be, he's claiming himself to be king and priest here. And so Gideon actually leads Israel towards idolatry. So Turn with me, uh, you can kind of look back real quick. Chapter 8, looking at verse 27, it says this. It says, Gideon made an ephod and, and put it on the city in Ophrah, and, and, the, and all of Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Now, go with me to verse 28. So Midian was also subdued before the people of Israel. Look, Midian was subdued, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest of Gideon for 40 years. So, the, so God has brought them to this place of victory over the people of uh, the, the Midianites. And, and then Israel's like, well, we won that battle so we can put our heads down there. They no longer looked up to God. They now looked to, to Gideon and everything that he was doing. You know, one, one, pastor, uh, one pastor notes that this peace was actually, that Gideon brought was actually a peace without worship and without obedience. And actually, this was the only time and the first time in the book of Judges where the people of Israel actually fell away from God when the judge was actually ruling over them. Not after. And so we see the beginning of, of this decline here. And I begin to think about it this way. I, I've been flying since, since I was a baby, right? I mean, I've probably been on hundreds of planes in my entire life, just going from here to there. I'm actually about to hop on a plane to go to class later this afternoon, so go me for that, yeah. Um, but one thing you'll notice as you wait for the plane is that the first person on and the last person off is always the pilot, Right? And, uh, and his job, the, the job of the pilot is to secure the plane from point A to point B. And if he doesn't do that when it's on the ground, it's a security breach. And if he doesn't do that in the air, it's catastrophe, right? 
It's the death of those on board and, and then the trickling effects that, that has the felt effects that ripple through the deceased families, right? The poor judgment of, of one pilot can affect the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, and leave lasting scars for years to come. This is Gideon's story. Gideon was Israel's pilot, and he had a very strong takeoff, but by the end of the narrative, he had a broken down plane at the wrong airport. And so this is where we kind of leave off. In verse 33, chapter 8, it says this, As soon as Gideon died, the people weren't looking up to, to the heavens anymore. It was a peace without worship and without obedience. But look, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of the enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Gideon and return for all the good that he had done for Israel. So as soon as Gideon died, Israel gave themselves back fully to their idols. They, they did what they knew. They turned to idols. They forgot God even. Israel forgot God, uh, forgot what Gideon had done for them, and he continued to reign in this peace for 40 years. And, and so in this 40 years, he gets 70 sons by many wives and, and another son by a concubine uh, in the town of Shechem, and, and his name is Abimelech. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament, names mean something. And so for a, a, the word Abimelech, the name Abimelech actually means my father is king. Now, if you understand just a few, chapter, or a few verses ago, Gideon's like, I'm not going to be your king. God will be your king. And to the decline of Gideon, and then he names his son Abimelech, who says, my father is king. And so we automatically see the problem here, the issue here. Abimelech was an illegitimate son and an outsider, even in his own family. He wasn't by a wife of Gideon. He was by Gideon's concubine from, a, from another town. So let's read this together. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 6, it says, Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, or Gideon, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that 70 of your sons of Gideon rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember I am your bone and I am your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of the leaders of Shechem and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal with uh, which uh, Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. As a side note here, if you are ever found yourself in scripture, I hope it's not known as worthless and reckless. All right, moving on. Um, and when he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Gideon, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together at Beth Milo, and they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. So, so we got to set this up because now what we see, we see the illegitimate son named Abimelech, whose name means my father is king, now take a kingship. Something that doesn't belong to him, something that belongs to God in the people of Israel is now taken by an illegitimate heir. And so we see Abimelech goes and he says, look, he starts working the people of Shechem, he starts working his mother's people because they're not Gideon's people, they're his mother's people in the land of Shechem. And so we start saying, hey, look, would you rather have them rule over you or me? I'm local, you guys know me, and they, you are my people, I will watch out for you. Gideon was, I'm sorry, Abimelech was the self-appointed king. 
That's point one. Gideon was, or Abimelech was the self-appointed king. Abimelech wasn't about doing God's business. He was about doing his own business. He has no desire to lead God's people well or to obey God, but only do what he can do to get what he can get. Now, we, we understand this, too, that we start talking about the land of Shechem. And Shechem has significance in the land of Israel. It is where God appeared to Abraham to, to tell him that, that this was the promised land. This was the land that he's going to be delivered to. It's the first place in the promised land to have an altar of worship built. The people of Israel built their first altar to worship the one God who has delivered them into this land at this place in Shechem. It's the first place that the people of Israel worshiped after they crossed the land under the leadership of Joshua. What happened here, when you see in verse, verse 6, when Abimelech was made king, a place reserved for God and the people of Israel, what happened at the oak of the pillar was a travesty for Israel. It is a travesty for Israel. God is supposed to be king over Israel, not man, and especially not Abimelech. Now, there's a commentator who says this is the equivalent of slavery being reinstated on the grounds of Gettysburg. Now, if, you're, if we were in an American context, that would be, okay, yeah, I know what that is. So for Canada, you might not know what Gettysburg is. And so I had to start thinking through, how can I portray this to a Canadian audience? And here's the, here's the reality. The self-imposed claim of Abimelech followed by being a given kingship at Shechem is a modern version of the Nazi party being reinstated under the gates of Auschwitz. Just to give you a glimpse and an understanding and a picture of what this actually meant. So Abimelech took for himself the title that rightfully belonged to God in order to promote his own affairs and his own agendas. And I have to stop there because how often do we do this for our own selves? How often do we appoint our own selves king over our own lives or king over whatever just so we can have our own place in our own life? We begin operating under the, the guise of self-righteousness and not God's righteousness. And I know for a lot of us who've grown up in church, we can, we can recite that and we can even navigate the conversations to make us look like we're spiritual or that we're holier than thou or that we're something that we're not. But the reality in all of this is that we do this so often in our daily lives of making ourselves the rightful heir of our own throne rather than God being on our throne. And we have to be cautious, we have to be careful because, because the very thing that we're doing is this picture. And I saw some of you, when that picture went up, you went, ooh, that's a brief momentary depiction of what we do to God in our own lives if you're a believer every single day when you rely on yourself and when you self-impose your own beliefs. And we go, we're going to track through this. I'm not going to read through this entire uh, chapter here because it can get fairly long, so I'm just going to kind of paraphrase what happens next. And um, Verse 7, the brothers were killed except for Jotham, except for the youngest brother. And it was, when it was told to, to him what had happened and that Abimelech went, Jotham now goes to Mount Gerizim and tells a story to the people of Shechem about noble trees about being, them being asked to rule over the forest. And so first he talks about the olive tree and, and the, the, the trees of the forest go to the olive tree and they say, olive tree, will you rule over us? And he says, no, I'm too noble and I, the, I, I produce olive oil and I am of great use and so I am not going to do that. And then they're like, all right, so what's next? Well, he was our first choice, so what's our, all right, now we go to the fig tree. Fig tree, 
Will you rule over us? And, and he says, no, I can't do that because my fruit is savory and people adore me and, and you want a Fig Newton because that's where it comes from. And, and we, we begin to think, and they're like, he's like, no, I will not. And so like, well, the trees of the forest begin to walk and they say, all right, well, the olive tree will not be our king. And, and now the fig tree will not be our king. But you know what? There's a noble plant. It's not a tree really, but it's a vine. And they go to the grapevine and they say, grapevine, will you rule over us? Please, will you rule over us? And we know that you're not a tree, but you still have value. And he says, no, I'm producing wine. I, am, I, I have valuable things to do. I can't rule over you. And so then they go to a thorn bush or a bramble. And this, this bramble is worthless to be king. And this story become, begins, becomes and starts the showdown between Abimelech, which means my father is king, and the younger brother of Jotham, which means the Lord is blameless. And we see the showdown between these things. And one thing we can understand is this. Abimelech is a subpar savior. He puts himself in these places and he says that I'm going to lead you and I'm going to rule you, but he is a subpar savior. We see Jotham's story reaches its climax when he actually gets to the bramble and all the other trees and vines, they serve a purpose and bramble does not. Bramble is a plant that is cut down to be discarded. Bramble is a thorn bush. It is a plant that serves harassing to all those who touch it. Here's a picture of bramble just to give you an idea. You have trees who've gone from asking nobility to be their king the whole way down to a thorn bush. And the, the thorn bush is saying, look, you can find shade under me. Well, that's absurd because we know that shade is non-existent under the bramble and seeing tall trees wanting to fit under a thorn bush is impossible and it's downright ridiculous. And the, and the bramble will serve to snag, to snare, to cut, to harm if it's not properly discarded. And so we see Jotham in this way. He says, look, Verse 15, the bramble said of the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you. Again, we understand that this is a parallel between what's happened with Abimelech and a story about trees. He says, if in good faith, look, you have anointed me king over you. Yes, he was anointed, but only after his self-imposed anointing. He says, then you come and take refuge under my shade, but if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, one thing we're gonna see <laughs> is that the threat of fire is actually interesting here because it's exactly what happens to the people at Shechem. And so we begin to, to process through this. Verse 16, to the people of Shechem, look, if you've been fair to Gideon's family, then may God bless you. But we, we know they haven't. How do we know? It's because they've accepted Abimelech as their self-appointed leader. They actually paid him to hire a group of vigilantes to go out and finish the job that they didn't want to do, to kill the rest of Gideon's children. And so they made him king at Shechem. They made him king at the place that God declared him of himself. The place where he led Israel. The place where he appointed himself king over Israel. This is what happens. And Jotham says, well, since you haven't appointed him in good faith, let fire come out from Abimelech. And the, Shechem's, uh, the Shechemites would soon see their mistake. Right, and so you see quickly, verse 22, it says, Abimelech ruled over Israel for only three years. 
But note this. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So, so to the people, to the people of uh, this happens really quickly, right? And so within three years, Abimelech and Shechem, God allows and, and ordains, that's the whole thing here. He allows it, but he also ordains this evil spirit to, to begin the disintegration of trust between, the evil, uh, between Abimelech and the Shechemites. This tells me, when I look at this passage, that, that no matter what you do in your life, you cannot thwart God's plans over your life. This, this tells me you cannot thwart God's plans or God's purposes ultimately. Can you wreck your life? Yes. Can you walk in sin that creates huge ripples throughout your family and through others? Yes. Can you have something crazy happen to you? Can you suffer extreme consequences because of your sin? Yes. But know and remember that ultimately God's plans and God's purposes will not be affected. We know that in the midst of our sin that God still works. We know in the midst of our sin that God still reigns. We know in the midst of our sin that God's plan will prevail despite us. And you can't mess up when he intends and what he wills. You can kick and, and scream and scheme, but, but, but his will, his will would not be made second to your life and to your wants and to your needs. And so we see pretty quickly that the people of Shechem try to separate themselves from Abimelech and, and, and what he has done in order to gain his position of power. So now they're pretty much separating, going like, ah, man, this guy's crazy. I'm not, I'm not going to deal with that. Like, I don't know what happened. He, he came in and he took it. Like, we didn't appoint him. Well, yes, you did. Verse 6, you appointed him king at the place of the yoke. And the people of Shechem, instead of kicking Abimelech out because they became fearful of Abimelech, they now begin targeting Abimelech and those who help him. They become lawless together in their own right. They, they assault the very thing that they ordained. They begin to find problems with the very thing that they anointed. They begin to try to beat an enemy that they created. And I, 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 just, I, I just think about that within our own context about how many times do we do that? How many times do we start, like we, we create the monster within us and then we're turning around trying to figure out ways to, to take it out, to, to get rid of it, to cut out the sin in our life. To, you know, we've created it and now we're stuck with it and now it's affecting us. And now we're like, God, please help me get rid of the very thing that I've rooted and he will only if you cry out to him. But we don't see that here. We see the people of Shechem trying to deal with the problem of Abimelech on their own power. And as with any leadership void, as, as Abimelech is kind of forced out of the town of Shechem, as with any leadership void, there becomes a vacuum and people are willing to be led by anyone who has a plan, no matter the character. We all have a desire to be led, to be pointed to the right direction, because we, in our hearts, are wired to follow the creator of the universe. In our hearts, we are wired to follow something, and that something is a someone, and that someone is God. Now, when we're not following God, anything that is in our lives and is in our hearts that tries to put its self-appointed power over us, we are dumb sheep, and we follow it. It's kind of like the mosquito going to the, the buzzing light, where for us, if you're anything like me, which is, might be a little bit sadistic, you sit there and you laugh every time you hear us. And, and that's the reality, but like, that's, that's where we find ourselves. 
And, and we are drawn to these things, and, and those, these things are, are going to be not helpful. These things are going to be quite unbeneficial, but we still track with them anyway. And what do we see as Abimelech is out into the wilderness? We see that this really is the result of the godless. We see that this here is the result of the godless. When rulers try to take God's place, there is chaos. Anytime throughout world history, when you see a leader try to take the place of God, there is oppression, there is death, and there is slavery. Before I felt called into pastoral ministry, I was a U.S. history major at the University of Central Florida. I've been able to walk through these things of history, these components of history, these timelines of history, and these things, every time you see a Stalin or a Mao or a Hitler or a Mussolini or an Un, anytime you see things like that raise their head, it is never in the context for the glorification of God. It is for the glorification of self. And the consequences flow out of that. And so we see the result of the godless. And so Abimelech is out of, of the town because of his arguing with, and his fighting and, and the evil spirit between him and the people of Shechem. And there's a man named Gal who comes to Shechem and challenges Abimelech for a fight for the control and the reign of Shechem. And Gal shows up and he's like, where is your king? And they're like, well, uh, we're not really getting along right now. And he goes, oh, so you guys don't like your king. Well, no, but he's technically still our king. Great, I shall be your king. And we see that, that the people actually revolt against Abimelech, and then Jotham's words actually came true. Gal takes power in Shechem. Abimelech is thrown out, but Abimelech is not going to go down without a fight. And in an ambush, long story short, in an ambush, Abimelech chases the people of Shechem into the tower of Shechem, which is the stronghold in the middle of the city. It is a place of last refuge where the people would go. And a thousand people of Shechem rush into this tower and as Jotham's words would proclaim, the people of Abimelech and, and his men who were following him take dried bramble and wrap it around the tower to set it on fire. Therefore, understanding that, that Shechem got exactly what was deserved of them and Shechem got exactly what was foretold of them. So Abimelech then decides just, you know, I've already killed all the people of Shechem and this, this little feud of ours is carried on to different places throughout the region. And so now I'm going to go and attack the town of Thebiz. And the same thing happens. He attacks and they all rush into the central tower. And they begin to put dried bramble around it to, to burn them out. But the story here changes. And this is a story of God's grace in this. Is that a woman on the top of the tower is carrying a millstone and drops it off the top. And it hits Abimelech in the head crushing his skull. No, it didn't kill him right away because what do we see next is that Abimelech's like, look, I'm not going down by the death of a woman. That's the culture and the context. And he's like, I'm not going down like the other guy, right? I'm not going to get stabbed a bunch, right? So he turns around and asks his, his servant to kill him so he's not killed by a woman. So he would have a warrior's death. Now, that is the end of Abimelech. And as we walk through, we begin to get to chapter 10, and we see God's relief. After the, after the whirlwind of evil that, was, that, that surrounded Abimelech, the Lord raised up judges to save Israel. 
Look, look, even though the debacle of Shechem left Israel in a horrible condition, God showed his grace and mercy towards them by raising up men who would lead them well. They never put up their heads to cry out to God. They still were living in this this whatever, this, this tunnel vision mindset that they would not look up towards the heavens, but that they kept on looking in a state of peace, which is no more without worship and without obedience to God. They kept on doing the same things that they knew they shouldn't be doing, and they thought it was going to give them a response. Well, it did. And it was a gracious God. Now look at me. Chapter 10, verse 1 says this. After Abimelech there arose to save Israel, Tola the son of Hua, Son of Dodo, son, of, which is a terrible name for the Bible, by the way, right? A man of uh, a man of Iskar, and he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel twenty three years. Then he died and was buried in Shamir. And after him Rozier, a Gileadite, who who judged Israel twenty two years. And then he had thirty sons who rode on thirty donkeys, and they had thirty cities called Havath Jer to, to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jer died and was buried in Canaan. They're like, all right, Andy, what's the, what's the point of that? The people of Israel abandoned God's ways, and they left his statutes, but he is still faithful. He allowed a home and still allows a home to the wandering and allows judges who will serve as shade to Israel and not as a bramble or a thorn bush. See, see this time, Israel didn't need saving from a foreign enemy. We understand this. Israel needed saving from themselves. And that's the first time we see that in the book of Judges. Israel did not need saving from a foreign enemy that was attacking them. They needed saving from the very sin that was within them. Israel now had a leader who would guide them and care for them. Israel did not cry out to God because the scriptures make it clear that they didn't because it says there arose to save Israel. They didn't cry out to God. This was God's ordained grace in their life. But yet Israel was saved and God keeps saving. This is, this is proof, church, this is proof that God doesn't wait for us to get our stuff together, but that he seeks us even when we don't want him and even when we don't desire him. Just as, just as Israel's greatest problem is Israel, one commentator notes that the church's greatest problem is the church. And I know that's kind of hard to, to swallow and to hear But as much as we want to separate ourselves from the heart of Israel and the attitudes of Israel and the people of Israel, we are the people of the same issues and the same attitudes and the same heart positions. They were a people hoping for a savior. We are a people who are waiting on the second return of that savior. We often think that that, that if the right person wins an election, that everything's going to be fine. They're God's man. Oh, it's, it's good now. For the Americans, for the Christian evangelicals, it's, there's a Republican in the White House, praise the Lord. Look, you can see Republican or Democrat in the White House, sin still reigns. Sin still rules so many of these people. We often think that if we can, we can, uh, that, that, that if, if we can live our lives in this utopian bubble, that, that our children won't be like those other kids. Right? We, we think if our spouses would be more loving and more kind and, and affectionate and, and they'd pay attention better, then, then our hearts and our thoughts would never wander from them. We need to realize that sin easily entangles us. One of the best 
I would say modern, but within modernity, one of the best modern commentaries of this is actually the book, The Lord of the Flies. What do we see in Lord of the Flies? A bunch of Boy Scouts get thrown onto an island. They're left to govern themselves, and it only ends in the murder of so many and the dissension between so many. It doesn't end until they realize their mistake when they're saved off the island and they realize what they have done. This is a, a picture of this thing. Our sin is within us. It's not outside of us. This is why even if you had a perfect Christian utopia, sin would still be evident. It's attached to us. This is why we need Jesus. This is why we focus on his salvation. This is why we rejoice in our Savior and we await his return. This is why we hope and trust in the resurrection of Christ. And we see that God said, enough, Israel, I, I, my heart breaks for you. You're not looking to me. But you know what? You know what? I still care for you. I still desire you, Israel. I don't know. But this doesn't last long because in verse 6 we see a familiar story. We see the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asteroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, for they forsook the Lord and they did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them again into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 more years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Ammonites, which is in Gilead. Church, we read this and we're like, again, are you serious? It's like, are you, are, you, are you serious? Like, you are worshiping the very thing that is oppressing you. You are worshiping these false gods and their people hate you. They're not, you're worshiping their gods. And guess what? They're not assimilating you. They don't want you. They're rejecting you because they're oppressing you and killing you and, and making you feel as an outsider, though you're trying to be alongside them. This tells us that we are not to be like them. This tells us that there is a distinction between the people of God and the people that aren't of God. No matter how hard you try, if you are truly someone who is following God, you will look like an outsider to the rest of the culture. See, idolatry will lead you to slavery, and then ironically, your slavery leads you to idolatry. You would think that Israel would hate the idols and the gods of the very people that oppress them, and we look, and I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans 1, that they gave themselves over to idols, and God gave them over to the lusts of their heart. And this is where we see a people who are more about themselves and their self-righteousness and their own desires rather than about what God has called them to. Israel literally is the boy who cried wolf. We see this in verse 10. It says this, after 18 years of being oppressed by the people that don't want them, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord about time, this is the first time in two and a half chapters that you see Israel actually lifting their head to the heavens to cry out to God. They say, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our gods and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidians also and the Amalekites and the, the, the Maronites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. 
Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, catch this church, I will save you no more. This is God saying, I've saved you out of all these things. Guess what, Israel? I've even saved you out of your own mess with Abimelech. You didn't even cry out to me, and I still showed you mercy. But you know what? You, after that, you left me again. Forget it. I'm done. He said, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. This is God's challenge. He's saying, you know what? I'm done. This is God saying, what else can I do for a people who don't want me? But here's the thing, the, the verse 15, we see the people of Israel said to the Lord, look, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us on, on whatever for that day. Please deliver us today. Verse 16, after God's threat, it says this, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and they served the Lord and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Israel. So we see Israel's cry literally is the one who's cried wolf. And we see it from the beginning of Judges the whole way through the Old Testament until now. But in the book of Judges, we see this time and time again. They're walking in sin. They rebel against God. God saves them after they cry out. They put themselves into oppression, into slavery, into sin, and dis disobedience. And they get stuck in oppression for 18, 8 years, 20 years, 22 years. And they look up finally and they cry out to God and God's like, you know what, enough. God sees their hearts in that they don't want saving in the manner of which God saves, but saving in their current condition only. Church, how often is that us? How often is that God saved me from the junk I just got myself into? God, please don't let me face the consequences of the sin that I'm dealing with. It says, Saving from the mess that they've got themselves into, they, they want a rope from a pit, and they get out of the pit, then they wonder what's in the pit that's dug next to them, so they jump in. The first time you can say, that was foolish. The second time you say, maybe that was a mistake. The third time you say, are you serious right now? God's patience is so much greater than ours. Israel is sorry for the consequences of their sin but not over their actual sin. They are treating God actually as one of their idols. They're saying, God, let us appease you. Let us look to you. Let us cry out to you. God, let me appease you long enough that you would see that I'm sorry. They're trying to, to appease by doing things of ritual rather than, than desiring and obeying what the, the God saves. And so we see verses 15 and 16 when the Israel responds that the people said to the Lord, we have sinned, do whatever you seems good to you. This is a sign of true repentance. This is God, the Israel saying, do whatever you must, but please save us. We would rather be under your rule than another's rule. And this is where we say, so they put away their foreign gods and he became impatient over the misery. Now, I love that last line, that God became impatient over the misery of Israel. And I, I equate it to this. There's times in my life as a father that my kids are driving me nuts, and I know that never happens to anyone else in this room who has children. But about the fifth time when I've told them to stop doing something that I know is going to hurt them, it might sound evil, but I go, fine, do it your way. And I step back. And they start looking around going like, where'd dad go? <laughs> you mean he no longer cares that I jump off the back of the couch onto the countertop to do a backflip onto the floor? And I'm like, yeah, sure. 
but am I ever truly away? <laughs> no. I'm right around the corner popping my, my eye out. All right. He's on the back of the couch again. I told him not to do that. He looks. I move. Oh, he didn't see me. He's on the top of the couch looking around. I can make it to the, to the countertop from here this time. Bro, the countertop is in an elevated position four feet away. It's not going to happen. You are three. <laughs> right? And he sits there, and he's like, where? I'm, I'm gonna, his dad's not watching anymore. I'm going to do it. What happens? <laughs> Head on the counter. You're like, I told you. <laughs> and I, just to add a little bit of spite into it, I kind of stand around the corner for a few seconds as he starts wailing. I'm like, hey, <laughs> <laughs> Parents, don't you judge me. You know you've done the same thing. <laughs> but here's the thing. His cry screams out. And it's only so long before I can go, ah, oh, my heart breaks for him. Because I know he was stupid, but I know he's in pain. And I come around the corner, right? And this is the picture that we're seeing of Israel, of God saying, like, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. But they cry out. They get smart. And they want true signs of repentance. Now, here's the application points. We're going to kind of fly through these a little bit. But here's a few application points that I want you to take away from this, this whole narrative of Abimelech into, into them not crying out to God even though he still saves them. Look, here's the first thing. Trusting God is in the battle and after the victory. Hear me when I say that. Trusting God is in the battle and after the victory. It is easy to trust God in the battle. I think that's, that's a good, obvious statement. When life is tough and you have no place to go, it's easy to press into God's character. It's into who he is. In the thick of life's worries and problems, you will hear people question God's goodness. But here's the thing. You will rarely ever hear them say, God is not close. You will hear people question his motives, but they won't say God is not near. And it's usually on the heels of our biggest victories that the biggest cliffs are found. After the victory, in almost every movie, what do you see? You see the, the heroes walk out and wipe off their sweat. They start putting their weapons down in the back where they go and they start sitting around on the rocks and they start going, wow, maybe one of the characters might ask about where a good shawarma joint is, right? Uh, and, and that was for a select few, I guess, right? But they're sitting there and they're like, what, what's, what's next? Look, that is Hollywood, not reality. Church, we need to understand that this time when you're sitting on the, 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 the rubble of the, of the victory, when you see the mess and you're like, we've won finally, this is when a good enemy would strike. What you saw in the battle is just the tip of the spear. Because the moment that you think you've won, because the enemy that we fight is a cunning enemy, greater than any man-centered enemy you can know. And the, the moment that you think that you've had victory over whatever, and you take a breath and you sit down on the rock, he comes in with the rest of the spear. So church, we have to understand that trusting God is, is in the battle and after the victory. Look, and this is one thing we can take away from this. We can know that the victory is not about us. It is about God, Right? The victory is always about God. It's never about us. It is he who has brought you through the valley to set you on the mountaintop. If it was up to us climbing the mountain, we would be wheezing for air at the 20,000 foot marker. If the victory is about God, we must remember to point others to the victor. We must remember to trust God in the battle. And after the victory, we have to understand that the victory is not about us, but also we have to finish well. Church, we must finish well in the battle. Pointing others in our own hearts towards the greatness of God is the beginning of finishing well. 
Knowing, reminding, it's not about us. Finishing well also means that we don't take our eye off the prize. And our prize is the hope of the second coming of the king of the universe. That is our prize. The prize and the return of Jesus. Our hearts need to be focused on the expectations of the trumpet sound and the twinkling of the eye in which he will return. It means denying yourself to be accepted by him. I said several weeks ago, This finishing well sometimes says no to everything that you hoped you would be to say yes to what God has intended you to be. And that still reigns true in this moment. We see where Jesus and the gospel says, take up your cross and follow me. And so many of us will quote them, like, I just gotta take up my cross and follow the Lord. But we don't know what to do next. We quote quote that and we're like, I'm carrying a cross. Now what? Follow Jesus, the first one to bear the cross. And we go, but I don't know how to follow Jesus. Read the word of God. It is in black and white on the pages of your Bible of how to follow God. He doesn't leave it ambiguous what is a holy life. He doesn't leave it ambiguous what he expects of his people. He puts it out clear as day. It is us trying to find our own way for our own faith that we start saying, did God really say? Then we sound like the enemy in chapter three of Genesis. So we understand that. You walk with Jesus. So that's the first one. Trusting God is in the battle and and after the victory. Here's the second one. A past obedience does not negate present obedience. And we even see this with, with the person of Gideon. We see this, that, that he was started off so well but ended so poorly, right? Our faith is not a one and done thing. Our faith requires initial obedience to salvation through Christ, but it also is a daily obedience to the work of Christ. And just because you had a season in your life where you followed God really closely does not give you an allowance for sin to do what you want to do now. A past obedience must lead us into a present obedience, which points us to a future obedience and a future promise. Gideon started strong and even did some good things, but ended at a much lower place than where he began, and Israel does the same thing. We must push through in obedience, even when it's hard to follow Jesus, because I'm not up here pretending like it's not sometimes, like our our self-centeredness and our self-righteousness doesn't get the best of us, that our sin patterns don't get the, the best of us. Even when our sin is raging within us, look, we have to look towards God's demand for obedience. If you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, your obedience to him and his will and his word is not an option, it's a demand. And I think one of the biggest things is, this is why I say the church is the church's biggest problem because so many of us in the church, we want this relationship with God, but we refuse to do what he asks of us. If you're in any relationship, it's not gonna end well if you want the relationship, but you refuse to be faithful. It doesn't end well, but then we suddenly think that that's, well, I can do what I want. It's it's the same thing. This past obedience must lead us. He is there in the obedience. We don't do obedience on our own power. We do obedience by the power of the Spirit that's working within us. Here's the next thing. Remember, God is truly in control. Every time I hear this, I think of Amy Grant. God is in control. All right, sorry. Um, but the problem is, like, that, that's the problem, right? I hear that, and then I start shutting off. God's in control. Amy Grant, boom, done, right? But, but there are going to be times where our lives in this world is out of control. 
we need to remember that God is in control. He was in, in control in the beginning. He was in control when Israel rebelled. He was in control over the waters of the Nile. He was in control over the enemies of Israel. He was in control over the nails driven into the hands and the feet of Jesus. He was in control of the rock that rolled away. And he's still in control today. He, if God is in control over all those things, we must believe that he is in control over the things today. That God allows these things for his glory. Even the things that we find painful or, or boring or harsh or whatever, all of those things are for God's glory because what we do will not mess up God's ultimate plans. We can wreck ourselves in the process, but his plan will not be thwarted. He is truly in control. Here's the next one. God is patient. God is patient, but he will not wait forever. God is patient, but he will not wait forever. He was, you can see that in, in this narrative. He was so patient with Israel. And if you're a reality, if you're a reality like me, looking at this chapter, I'm going, I'm done. <laughs> like I'm not coming back. I am, I'm not doing this. But he was patient with Israel. But that patience was put to the test, and God showed Israel what life could be like with him and without him. And for some of you, God has been faithfully pursuing you for years, but his patience is starting to run thin. Understand that. I don't say that as, as a, from a place of, of being harsh. I say that as a place of caringness for you, that some of you have been toying with this religion and toying with this attitude that you think Jesus is a, is a fairy godmother or a lucky rabbit's foot for years. And he's calling you to himself and you're going back and forth trying to figure out what side of the fence you're going to be on. You know, the, the, the Amish have this, this rite of passage called Rumspringa, right? And uh, in Rumspringa, it, it's a time when, when young men and women of the Amish community can go and sow their wild oats, right? And, and at times, it may feel that we live in a Rumspringa Christian community. We sit and we were like, oh yeah, but then really what our hearts want is to be separated, to let us do what we want to do to experience the things that the enemy has promised us are so much better than God. But the problem is we live there. We, we find happiness between the pseudo-Christianity and the reality of sin, and we think it's okay. We think that God is somehow pleased with our, with our raising hands when our hearts are far from him. And so that, that's where we, some of us live. And some of you think that sounds pretty good, but there's a catch. At the end of Rumspringer, there is an end. There's a point where you must choose. Will you go back to the community of faith, or will you walk away from it being cut off forever? That's the same thing with us, church. We have one obedience to one God, and he demands a choice. He doesn't leave it up to us to figure out where we're going to go. He says, make the choice. And some then ask, if God is patient and he won't wait forever, let's find it. But some ask, why are we still stuck here, and why isn't he moving faster? That's why I'm thankful for verses like 1 Peter 3, 9. It makes it clear. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's patience is not his unwillingness to act. God's patience is meant for you to repent of your sin and come to him. And as we can see in the case of Israel... There is a point to where God says, all right, enough. You've played the game for far too long. Make up your mind on who you're going to follow. He is there when you cry out, but until then, you have been sold into the hands of the enemy. And so you, all of us, we must make a decision for the cause of Christ. We see that clearly the picture of Israel is not so far removed from us. 
We need to stop playing and get to the place where we cry out to God for true repentance and true salvation, which leads us to this. A love for God is coupled with a repentant heart. And this is what we see in Israel. Chapter 10, this is what we see. True repentance. Two signs of real repentance. Here's the first one. A sorrow for sin and not just consequences. Too many of us think that repentance is saying sorry to God and falling back into the same pattern again. And even times in my life, I fall into the same patterns because we treat God as some pseudo-sky fairy that's going to just free us from whatever. And that's not true. A sorrow for sin and not just its consequences. Is your heart breaking for the sin around you? Does your heart break for other people's sin that are around you? Do you put yourself willingly into positions where people say and do things that are contrary to God? Or do you live in community and are your main points of connection those who will guide you and spur you on towards holy living? Here's the second thing. It's a sorrow over idolatrous motives, not just your behavior change. It's not just saying, well, God, I'm going to try harder, do better, because guess what, church? You might do that for a little bit. It might work for a season of your life, but ultimately you're going to get worn out and tired because you cannot do this on your own. You cannot do this on your own. You must have a true change. You must have a broken heart towards sin. You must not want to encourage it and invite it into your life. Even the things that will drive you towards sin, you can't invite into your life. And you say, Andy, it's okay. I know how to navigate those type of things. No, you don't. Because I believe the Gospels. And when Jesus says what goes into your mind will come out of your mouth, what roots in your heart will come out of your mouth. But here's the thing. It ultimately comes out in your actions as well. It doesn't just stop at the words you say. It stops at what roots in your heart controls who you are. Now, The narrative of Gideon, going from Gideon to Abimelech to Israel crying out, is one of apostasy towards deliverance. It is is here where, again, God reminds us of who the lone victor really is. It is he who calls us into repentance and invites us into his family. And so I'm going to encourage you, if this is you, if you are someone who's been playing with this relationship with God that really doesn't exist for far too long, this is, this is a day to where the word has been truly spoken. And it's time for us to make that decision and to follow. We can no longer live like the people of Israel going to and from. We have to come to a place of true heart change and repentance that we would cry out to God saying, do whatever it is you must, but I would rather be under your law than bondage of the world. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we love you. And God, we are reminded how glorious you are, how great you are. God, we are reminded of Gideon's ascent to a great place, but also his decline, which his decline and his sinfulness leads to a self-appointed king, which leads to Abimelech, which leads to Israel infighting and death and murder, God, and then which leads to a poor king and poor choices, God, which leads to you graciously showing Israel again how great you are and again leads them to looking away from you in the midst of knowing how good you are. And so, God, we, 
We don't rest there in, in disobedience, God, but hopefully we rest in the final words of Israel in chapter 10 that says, God, we don't care what you do with us. I'd rather be under your law and your grace than something else that's oppressing us. God, even, even when, when it feels like you are oppressing us, God, we know that it is for righteous living and not because it is of the evil part of our being. God, we... We pray for those who are in this room who've been playing around for far too long, God, that, that we'd come to a place where we'd realize ourselves and the, and the back and forth of Israel, God, but we'd come to the place of true heart change. And we know that down the road with other judges, Israel is still foolish and they go back and forth, but this is a point, a stopping point, a turning point in which Israel sees their need for a savior. So God, we rejoice in you and we love you. God, when we turn towards you, so, God, we say all glory, all honor, all power, all wisdom and authority belongs to you. So, God, allow us to continue to worship in a heart of repentance and gratitude and love towards you. It's in Christ's name we pray.